This podcast is a co-production of ABC Australia and CBC Podcasts. I'm in a school hall in Australia on a Saturday night in a room packed with what feels like the entire Greek community of Australia. Old people, young people, whole families. If I'm being honest, the teenagers look like they've been dragged here. Good evening. Welcome. Kalosorisate. My name is James Salakis. Many of you know me by one of my various many aliases, Jimaki, Jim, Dimitri, whatever. We all have aliases in the Greek community. They're all here for a plan. 200 years of diplomacy has been useless. It's time for a change. This plan has not been sanctioned by the Greek government. Our biggest problem is not Greece convincing the rest of the world, but us convincing Greece it should do it. This is so irrational. It's something that civilization should not tolerate. It's a plan to unpick a series of scandalous events. He destroyed it. He pulled it apart. They're our property. Britain has no friends. It's a plan to unpick a costly shipwreck. Some of them were sunk in the sea. Sank off the Greek island of Kithira. And a shady transaction. Things happened with giving money under the table. But that was simply a lie. These are the world's most significant surviving ancient artworks. And a theft. When it's clearly stolen or illegally exported, then it should be given back. Britain will never accept a case brought by Greece. In the days of the British Empire, objects were taken. And we believe strongly that marbles belong here. Objects that tell us about the world we have today. The marbles were stolen. It's looting. This is what it is. I'm Mark Fennell, and this is Stuff the British Stole. It's very steep here, so excuse our huffing and puffing. It's not even 8.30 in the morning yet, and it's already 36 degrees Celsius in Greece's capital city, Athens. And Ellie? Ellie is Schwitzen. Yes, we're sort of halfway... Actually, it's much worse than that. I've asked her to do cardio. That's okay. It's one thing to sort of speak about them. It's another thing to speak about them when you're standing next to them. I do remember once coming as a 12-year-old when we were still allowed to actually uh, climb on the monument. We were actually allowed to stand on it. Yes, we're sort of halfway. But it's worth it for this view. So here we are. Welcome to the Acropolis, the 2,000-year-old mountaintop fortress that towers over Athens. And the temple is just behind me. I think people don't realise the size of the the building. You cannot really grasp that in a photograph. It just doesn't do it justice. And then, of course, the marble is a beautiful kind of pinky, fleshy colour. It's not pristine white, as some people might imagine. (laughs) In the late afternoon sun, in the sunset, it's it's a dazzling pink. That temple... The Parthenon is arguably one of the most iconic buildings on Earth. Originally built wrapped with these 10 metre tall columns, it is the symbol of ancient Greece. It's been used as a church, a treasury, a munitions store, but for Greek-Australian Ellie Simons, above all things... It's absolutely divine, gorgeous. 
Does it ever get old? No, I know. In fact, every morning when I go out for my coffee and I look up and I see the Parthenon standing on the Acropolis, I always feel a wow moment. It just, every morning it's wow. When you look at this place and you see all that's missing, all that's been taken, how do you feel? Oh, oh I, I am, my heart is wrenched when I see um, the willful and wanton destruction. I mean, it was just an absolute tragedy. Once upon a time, this mountain would have been filled with breathtaking statues of anatomically flawless gods and goddesses painstakingly etched from solid marble. Today, they are nowhere to be seen. And I remember as a child feeling so strongly about it that it was unfair and unjust and that it was a wrong that needed to be put right. Instead, they now form arguably the most contentious display at the British Museum in London. But the story of how the Parthenon marbles were taken from this mountain is frankly wild. It was just wanton destruction of something so incredibly beautiful. I mean, nothing comes close to the perfection of, of the Parthenon. It is just a very ugly episode in human history. This damage? This is why Ellie has spent the last eight years campaigning. And it's why after a life in Melbourne, Australia, she moved here to Athens. He hacked the front half of the marble off with, with literally with hacksaws. And so always in my mind, I wanted to do something about it. The man that Ellie and literally millions of Greeks all around the world hold responsible for this crime scene was Thomas, or as he preferred, the ambassador extraordinary and minister plenipotentiary of his Britannic majesty to the sublime port of Selim, the third Sultan of Turkey, Thomas Bruce, the seventh Earl of Elgin. What do you think of Lord Elgin? Well, I think he was an opportunist, like many, many people of that time. What do you think motivated him? Money and glory. About half an hour north of the Parthenon is a leafy, lush suburb. If you go through a little metal gate, surrounded by soft pink oleander, you will find a woman with a dramatic shock of black hair, bright red glasses. Shall I give you slippers? This is a woman who has gone to the highest levels of the British government to undo what Lord Elgin did on that mountain. My name is Lydia Cognordo. I have been brought up in Athens. I've been born in Athens and studied here. For over 40 years, Lydia Cognordo has been an expert in ancient Greek culture and drama. She's held a range of roles in Greek public life, but... Um, the main and the most important one was uh, being a minister of culture under Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras. From very early, uh, my mother would take me to archaeological sites and I fell in love with this ancient language. I heard it as a sound and I said, what a beautiful language is that? What musical language? And I started learning ancient Greek by myself, hmm. outside the school. Can you imagine? <laughs> so I was connected with this site of the Parthenon because this is a monument of freedom, of democracy, a freedom of speech and freedom of expression. So to understand how those monuments were broken up 
and what all of this has to do with mysterious Mr. 14 fancy titles Elgin, we need to go back to the turn of the century, when the 1700s was about to become the 1800s. A time when the land that Lydia stands on wasn't actually even a country. Greeks were slaves. The nation we know as Greece was then an occupied territory of the expansive Ottoman Empire, headquartered in what is now Turkey. Which was a very long occupation of 400 years. Turkey invaded all the mainland Greece, all the Mediterranean and and all the eastern Mediterranean at least, and in many, many countries. It was a big empire. Uh, But it had a very good terms with the Western powers. Those Western powers, though, particularly the French and the English, were in a constant state of conflict. And so keeping the vast Turkish power on side was strategically important, let's say. But it seemed no one was really paying all that much attention to Athens, this tiny, destitute city. It was a very poor and underdeveloped country. After 400 years, you can imagine how they were. Everything that they created was taxed uh, and their blood was sucked. But there was something this city held that made it very, very special. The treasures, that is, the statues. Meanwhile, over in the UK, it's summer in the coastal town of Weymouth in 1789. And a 32-year-old Thomas Bruce, or Lord Elgin to you and I, he's arriving at a ball. Yeah, he was, he was a clever person from Scotland. Who should walk up to him other than King George III? And he tells him he should apply for a job, a diplomatic posting, as the British ambassador to Turkey. Now, Elgin's newly married. He's busy doing some renovations on his home in Scotland. He's kind of hesitant. Turns out it was his architect who convinced him that there were these incredible marbles just wasting away on a mountain in Athens. Perhaps there was an opportunity here that he could make this new appointment, and these are his own words, beneficial to the progress of fine arts in Great Britain. He promised it to the the British uh, government, and um, many people were uh, entrepreneurs and opportunists, and, and they thought it as business. Elgin went to the government with a proposition. What if they would pay for a team who would make casts and do drawings of these Parthenon marbles? Uh, Perhaps even, and again, these are his own words, rescue some of their remains from ruin. It gave them an argument, yes, but we're saving it. We're protecting it. The answer from the government was no. So, he hatched a plan. He was going to go make himself a power player in the Turkish capital, Constantinople. Meanwhile, he would bankroll a personal Parthenon investigation team who would set sail for Athens. The first problem they encountered was access to the Acropolis. Not from the Greeks, mind you, because, of course... They weren't allowed to protect their own monuments, to protect their own treasures and their heritage. Their heritage was owned by the Turkish. Who were initially quite hesitant to let Elgin's Parthenon team onto the grounds to take measurements or do drawings. That is, until they suddenly weren't so hesitant. And as we know, very often things happened with giving money under the table. So it's a very shadowy way, uh, which is disputed and, of course, questioned in the way that Elgin had the right to do this barbaric act. 
not just money under the table. Pistols encrusted with diamonds, watches and British snuffboxes started to be transferred to Turkish authorities. And once Elgin's team did get access, they were gobsmacked. There's no question that the Parthenon had seen better days. The inside roof had already been blown off some 200 years earlier when someone thought it was a good idea to store gunpowder in the temple. But even among the rubble of wars and occupations was a treasure. On top of these columns, 14 metres in the sky, were solid slabs of marble that had been painstakingly hand-sculpted into perfect depictions of gods, of Athenian wars against Trojans, of titans and centaurs. This operation was not something you could do on the sly. You couldn't remove it without people noticing. And so Elgin needed a royal decree, something from the Sultan himself, a document also known as a firman. The piece of paper would say, "Okay, Elgin, you can go and remove this and take it because we want to be friends with the British. And luckily for Elgin, at this very moment in history, the Turkish did actually want to be friends with the British. Not long before, the British and the Ottoman Empire teamed up to defeat a French army in Egypt. And then suddenly, Elgin... He got this firman, as I say, from Constantinople. This gave him the permission, exactly because of the moment of a country which was under a foreign siege. Now, this is where things get fuzzy. What actually arrived in Athens was a translated document that instructed the local Turkish authorities to offer no opposition if Elgin's team wished to take away pieces of stone with old inscriptions and figures. Uh, Of course, it's not quite clear how many pieces he was allowed to take. If he was allowed to take things that were standing up there intact, or he could take things that had fallen to protect them. It's, it's not clear, and it's widely disputed. But it didn't matter. Elgin's team had just enough permission to do what they wanted. And so the rescuing of the ruins began. He put up a scaffold on the Parthenon with the permission of the Turkish invaders, not from the Greeks, of course, the Greeks were slaves, to put a scaffold and remove the sculpture. They started to destroy it and pull it apart. There are written reports of like British archaeologists living in Athens at the time who said they were shocked at just how much demolition was involved in Elgin's saving of these marbles. They pulled them down with ropes and very often pieces fell and they broke. They brought special marble saws to cut off the pieces that pulled together the roof of the Parthenon. That destroyed the building. This wasn't a smash and grab. This was years of well-resourced Turkish-sanctioned removal. And even while it was happening, the questions were already being asked. Is it okay to enter a a country under siege and to loot its treasures? Because this is looting. It's looting. This is what it is. And now that the British ambassador to Turkey had his loot, he faced a new problem. How on earth was he going to get them back? His first shipment 
uh, is loaded into a brig called the Mentor. We're aware that the Mentor struck heavy gale force winds in the Cape between the southern tip of Greece and the island of Kithira. That Cape is known as Cape Malea. The, the word Malea means hair and the legend is its depths are full of seamen's hairs because of the many shipwrecks that have occurred. Passengers and the crew are saved, but the crates of sculptures sank off the Greek island of Kithira. That's where both of my late parents come from. Wait, so you got involved because you, the shipwreck happened where your family was from? Yes, I got involved and I'm still involved <laughs> 20 years later. This is the voice of George Vardis. He is the vice president of Australians for the Return of the Parthenon Sculptures. We're in a, the porch, or the balcony of my in-laws place, uh, Yaguna, in the western suburbs of Sydney. It's a large block. I'm starting to realise two very important things. One, the passion over the Parthenon marbles extends well beyond Greece itself. And two, if you interview Greeks, you will always be fed. Oh my goodness, thank uh, you so much. I'm about to be offered Greek coffee and uh, Greek cookies by my (laughs) mother-in-law. I thought you talked together just... (laughs) Has he regaled you with heaps of stories about the the Parthenon marbles over the years? Yes, yes. From George? Yeah. All the time. All the time? Long time. <laughs> Long time. <laughs> and I wish, you know, I wish not funta, not a parameta marble, but... I'd like to know. take them back. We'd like to take them back, uh, she just said. Uh, they engage specialist divers from the islands of Kalimnos, and they retrieved the, I think there were about 17 crates, and eventually reloaded onto a replacement vessel and ferried off to England. Getting all of the marbles to the UK in multiple shipments in a time of great conflict was, to say the least, a saga. But once they were on British soil, things kind of get weird. They were put up temporary exhibition before they obviously made their way to the British Museum and they were regarded as as a curious item there were quite a few members of parliament who openly criticised Elgin for taking them, abusing his diplomatic posting to do that. And yet artists from far and wide came to the makeshift display on the corner of Park Lane and Piccadilly just to see them. The ancient Greek depiction of the human anatomy, the muscle tone, was something that a lot of viewers for the first time had encountered. Elgin apparently even organised boxing matches around them and had this fighter by the name of Robert Gregson. A pugilist in front of one of the sculptures. Naked, doing poses for two hours. So that people could compare the real anatomy with the Greek's version of anatomy. But ultimately, Elgin had a very serious problem. Actually, he had a range of problems. His marriage in the meantime had failed. He himself was suffering from syphilis and had noticeable facial disfigurement. And he was desperate. He really was. He had dedicated years of his life to these sculptures. And the guy was in debt before he left to become ambassador to Turkey. He was now in colossal amounts of debt. He paid, according to his own records, up to £70,000 
for the actual recovery of the sculptures, the initial bribes, whatever it took to get them to England. In today's dollars, it's around 4.7 million pounds, or 8 million Australian dollars if you want to compare. And whether Elgin really did want to save those marbles from ruin or just decorate his house at this point, it didn't matter. He needed money. So that translated Furman was produced, proving that it was a legitimate acquisition 18 years after the British government declined to pay for his initial expedition, they relented and agreed to buy his collection, ultimately to be displayed in the British Museum. But because he'd gained it during his time as ambassador, it was decided that Elgin should not profit from it. And they only paid him around half of what he asked for. He lost his marriage. He lost his wealth. He literally disappeared. To be fair to Elgin, in at least one regard, he was right. The moment the marbles went on display in the British Museum, the crowds started to pour in. They are regarded as the jewel and the crown of the museum. He did actually benefit the progress of fine arts in Great Britain. The Greeks came bearing a request, soon to be made officially to the British government, that the Elgin marbles be restored to their original cultural home. In time, Greece would emerge as its own country, free of the Turkish. And as early as the 1830s, they were asking for the marbles back. And that call has been consistently made over the decades and centuries. But now the Greek government wants them back. This is our history. This is our soul. But of course, the sale was legal now. Britain bought the sculptures legally in the 1800s from the Turkish Ottoman occupiers. For the longest time, The argument was made that the marbles were simply safer in Britain. The man who removed them, British ambassador Lord Elgin, claimed at the time he was rescuing treasures from the hands of barbarians. Oh, the Greeks at that time, they didn't care about their monuments and they destroyed them and we saved them that way. It does have to be said that the marbles that Elgin left behind on the Acropolis were exposed to decades of polluted air, acid rain, right out there in the open during years of violent political upheavals, World War II dictators? Here's a curly question. If the Parthenon marbles hadn't been taken, do you think they'd be in as good quality as they are today? My answer would be yes. And I know there were people who would point to the fact that the ones that remained suffered from pollution in Athens But they've also been substantially restored through laser treatment and other treatments over the years. We must not forget that the British Museum itself, back in the 30s... They scraped off the skin of the marble in order to clean them, this shiny surface. So they scraped the skin and created pores which allowed the marble to be more easily destroyed. Then there was the argument that Greece had nowhere to put the Parthenon marbles. Even if the British agreed to return the marbles, there'd be no place to store them in Athens. In other words, the Greeks couldn't look after them. And then, of course, the Acropolis Museum was created. Yes, Greece literally built a whole new museum to house them. But the British insist the marbles rightfully stay here. And they still said no. Still said no. And in 200 years, that no has never changed. I mean, obviously it's terrific that the new museum has been built and has such good facilities. 
But I mean, as I think you probably know, I mean, we believe strongly the marbles belong here, were properly acquired originally, and are an integral part of the collection today. But that hasn't stopped countless Greek politicians taking the fight right to Downing Street, including Lydia Cognodo. So when I was a a minister. I went to London and we met. I said that this is something that the Greek side will never stop. We should find a solution that would be accepted by both sides. What was the reception like from the British government? Uh, the, the excuse is always, the, the answer is always, but it's not for our decision to make. We are not responsible. The British Museum is responsible. And the British Museum says, yes, but we don't discuss this issue. For months now, we've been asking the British Museum for an interview, somebody who could articulate their current position in all of this history. And the answer has been nothing. Well, not nothing. They sent a statement, which you can have a look at on the website. But do you know what I realised? They don't put people up to talk about this because they don't have to. The law, British law, is on their side. And it has been for two centuries. It was a British lord who did the deal with the Ottomans, a British government who bought the collection, and that British museum collection remains protected under British law, a law that has been backed by decades of successive British politicians. Only recently, Boris Johnson has again slammed the door shut. As long as Greece tries to fight this on British terms, Greece will lose. It's been 200 years of cultural diplomacy has failed. And the saddest monument to that failure is this. The entrance of the museum is quite a grand entrance. It has, it's a very modern building. Ellie Simons, who you met at the beginning of this episode, she's made her way down the mountain to a building that was literally built on hope. So the Parthenon marbles are displayed exactly how they would be viewed on the Parthenon, the frieze and the metopes are exactly in situ replicated. This is that Acropolis Museum that the Greeks built, hoping that one day the Parthenon might come home. You can see the sun setting on the actual Parthenon out these gargantuan windows. And inside are whatever marbles were left behind. I think a greater proportion, maybe sort of 55-60% are in the British Museum and 40% are in the Acropolis Museum. And so where there is um, a piece that is in the British Museum that is displayed in the Acropolis Museum as a plaster copy. If you walk past them, it's sort of like, almost like they've just like extended the artwork out and kind of filled in yes. the leg and the foot and, and the stirrup, I think. Correct, and so that's absurd on its face. It looks absolutely ridiculous. So that means in the British Museum they're displaying a foot on its own that doesn't belong to anything, while the, the, the part of that frieze, the rest of that, is in Athens, and it's just, you know, nonsensical. All throughout this building, it's the same story. Marble body parts literally split across continents. It is just plainly ridiculous that half a sculpture, quite literally, of the same body is uh, cut in two. This is why Ellie spends her days here in Athens lobbying Greek ministers, why George Vardis in Australia does the same to our politicians. In the millions spread across the global Greek diaspora, there is a deep rage. It's something that is in my head and heart, and... uh, It's part of us. Democracy 
found its expression, the idea of democracy found its expression in Periclean Athens, and that monument atop the Acropolis basically embodies that. And through a strange quirk, it may just be democracy, the biggest, messiest version of it that we have, that will hold the key to finally resolving all this. And the man holding that key is Geoffrey. Which Geoffrey, you ask? Geoffrey Robertson here, Mark. I gather you want an interview. Can you give me a call or find me at the Regents Hotel in Sydney? Hello. 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 How are you? Hi. I'm Mark. Nice to meet you. Uh, I'm from the ABC. Uh, So, can I just start, if it's okay with you, asking how did you first get involved in the return of the Parthenon marbles in the first place? The Greek government approached me and I gave them an opinion. I'm Geoffrey Robertson. I'm a Queen's Counsel, which means I'm a senior barrister working mainly in Britain, but in fact in international courts. Geoffrey Robertson is arguably one of the world's most famous human rights lawyers. And it was his opinion that... Diplomacy is futile. So uh, the only way that the marbles will ever come back is to have the judgment of the International Court of Justice. Yep. Forget the British courts and go to the International Court of Justice. I thought the principle that cultural heritage that had been wrongfully acquired should be returned would be upheld by the International Court of Justice, if you could get there. Okay, so first question. How do you prove the wrongfully acquired part when so many people have argued, successfully, that Elgin had permission from the rulers of the day? They were stolen by Elgin. He went in and bribed, massive bribes, to the Turkish commanders who just turned their a blind eye while they were ripped off. Central to the British Museum's claim on the marbles is the existence of a document commonly referred to as a firman that mm. entitled, at least in Elgin's view, that he could take mm. these objects. There never was a firman. Firman is a sacred and solemn statement by the head of the Ottoman Empire, the Sultan. Copies of every firman ever issued are kept in what is now Istanbul and have been searched. There is no firman ever. Remember how I said earlier that they got a translation of a firman? The firman that gave Elgin's team access to the site, that legitimised the sale of the marbles to the British government. Well, the original has never been found. And even that translation was incredibly vague. It didn't give him any rights other than to enter and draw and to pick up stones on the ground. The entire legality of the British claim on the Parthenon marbles is built on what can and can't be found in these pages. The Sultan never signed anything. This has been claimed, but it's simply a lie. So how do you even get a case argued in the International Court of Justice? General Assembly of the United Nations can ask for an advisory opinion. If enough member countries push for it, the UN can ask the International Court of Justice to look into this issue. 
this would require the next step where you lobby member states to support a resolution by the International Court of Justice. So Greece needs some friends in the United Nations. Yes, yes. Welcome, Carlos Orizate. All of that is how I ended up in the back of a freezing Sydney school on a Saturday night. It now gives me great pleasure to um, ask Mr George Vardis, Vice President... Jeffrey, George Vardis, they're all here. The Australians for the return of the Parthenon sculptures is one of 18 countries supporting the return. For all intents and purposes, this is a campaign rally. There's no way you can go into a British court and claim the marbles back because British law stops you. But international law is different. Thank you. This campaign is undoubtedly a long shot. But all around the world, there are meetings just like this, where the Greek diaspora is agitating both their home nations and also Greece itself. And it's time to push this issue in the UN. The Greeks really need to look at this in a different manner. We need to step up. I think it's telling that the next stage of your campaign can only succeed on the biggest form of democracy we have in the world, being the United Nations. The democratic ideals that ancient Greece engendered finds expression in the United Nations. It would be the proper venue, the proper forum, where other countries are also invited to participate. Thank you once again. something quite fascinating about watching the the Greek community stretched across the globe, pushing for something that is so removed from their everyday lives. And weirdly, the person who crystallised it for me was actually this guy. World opinion overwhelmingly, and for many years now, has supported the return of the sculptures. This is David Hill. Hilariously, he used to run the ABC. But more importantly, he's not Greek. Actually, he's originally British. I was born in the UK. I came out to Australia uh, under one of the child migrant schemes. The British are the only nation in history that exported large numbers of its poor children, and they sent kids as young as four without parents. And that's how you ended up in Australia? That's how I ended up in Australia. But when he landed in Australia, he started playing soccer with the Greek kids. He married a Greek woman. His now fluently Greek son schools him constantly in the language. And David has now spent 20 years himself fighting for the return of the Parthenon marbles. The Australian Greeks, they're third generation, some of these people, and yet they're Greeks in their soul. It's a very interesting thing about the Greeks. They're one of the most migratory people in history, and yet the Greek migrant never loses their Greekness. I'm a, a, an English migrant to Australia. I'm not English at all. I am 100% Australian, but the Greek, they're proud Australians, but they're also proud Greeks still. Greece has been through a lot. The Nazis, the communists, and it is a rallying point. It is something they feel proud of, and rightly so. Whether this gambit with the United Nations can or will work remains to be seen. But after 200 years, it seems no matter where the Greeks go around the world, at least some of them will keep on fighting. Just quickly before I let you go, do you think you'll see the marbles returned in your lifetime? I'd like to think so. If not, my grandson, who's just turned three, 
I'm priming him to take over from his granddad who lost his marbles. <laughs> George, go enjoy the night. Thank you, Mark. Stuff the British Doll is produced by Zoe Ferguson and myself. It was made with the help of Leah Simone Bowen from CBC Podcasts. Mixing by Hamish Camilleri. The executive producer is Amrutha Slee. And the head of society and culture for ABC RN is Julie Browning. Special thanks to Alyssa Moxley and Dennis Tritaris. This is a production of ABC RN in partnership with CBC Podcasts. It was created and written by me. I'm Mark Fennell, and here's a hint for the next episode. Two priests and one lie that tells the truth.